Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. Welcome back to our third and final stop in the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. It's been kind of a weird three weeks of passages, don't you think? Let's do a quick recap. Two weeks ago, we worked our way through a very hard passage about a wedding banquet. We tried to understand the context of what the author was facing in his time and ended up untangling it enough to be reminded of our own agency. Our call as Christians includes showing up with humility, being present for others, developing spirits of courage and integrity, and in the end, discovering for ourselves the worthiness God has always known about us all along. Then last week, our gospel story picked up right where we left off the week before, as we heard how the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to work together using flattery and duplicitous strategies in order to trip up Jesus, asking him a question intent on securing his demise. But rather than falling into their trap and taking the bait, Jesus held up the coin with the image of the emperor on it and gave an answer that they did not expect. Simply, the coin with the face of the emperor was the emperor's, so give it to him. Then we wrestled with the larger question. If everything we are and everything we are given is from God, what do we do to pay tribute to that source of eternal love? We ended with bold claims that if there is no divide and everything belongs to God, including our very lives, then our spiritual and our political lives must align. They must be in perfect harmony. We cannot isolate our political choices and our actions as if they don't reflect who we are as image bearers of our creator. So now we start in the final verses of this chapter. And once again, we have the Pharisees, the educated religious professionals of the day, trying one more time to entrap Jesus and force him to say something blasphemous. Remember, when the lawyer in the pericope asks the question, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He must have thought, as any good lawyer does, what the outcome of that question would be, how Jesus would answer. He must have believed he had once and for all cornered Jesus. Scholars tell us there were over 600 Jewish laws or regulations written in that time to provide a framework for patterning one's life as a devote and faithful person. There were laws about how to pray in the morning and in the evening, how to bless food, how to give thanks for the first flower of the season, how to visit the sick, what to say to an unrepentant sinner, a proper prayer for every human activity, worship, loans, gift-giving, parenting, violence, theft, food, sexual intercourse, Sabbath, 
you name it, there was a rule for it. Being faithful to God at the time was synonymous with adhering to these laws and regulations. So the doing of the law above all else became primary. And this was the context in which Jesus was being set up for failure by his brothers, the Pharisees. Did you hear what I just said? His brothers, the Pharisees. It's important to remember that this debate, along with the Sadducees, was probably more like a family feud than a modern-day bipartisan debate. We read scripture, and sometimes I think we forget that Jesus himself was a faithful Jewish man. He was calling his people back to the way that he believed God intended them to be from the beginning. He was not an outsider from his perspective, but rather a deeply committed Jew trying to love his people. And Jesus never loved from a distance. He was never afraid to touch or be touched, literally or emotionally, by those who needed him, by those who needed his love, even though some of those people were intent on trapping or tricking him. What Jesus practiced throughout his entire ministry, with no exception, was a kind of love that I think is almost impossible for us to imagine. And what I find spiritually delicious about his response today to these individuals trying to attempt to trap him is that he is actually giving us a most exquisite example of practicing what he was preaching. Rather than be trapped by the Pharisees and the Sadducees this morning, Jesus once again pivots like a good martial artist and he redirects the negative energy that is being hurled towards him. So maybe we can do the same as well in our own lives. Maybe we too can remember to pivot, to turn just a bit, anytime that we feel trapped or like we are being set up or given false choices. So what does Jesus say in answer to the question he has asked? He says the, says the words this morning that have shaped so much of Christian spirituality for decades. They have helped us drown out the noise and the distractions that we can fall prey to if left to our own devices and wills. What he says, when asked which is the commandment in the law that is the great, greatest, these are those beautiful words that he utters. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I've come to think of these words as beautiful, sacred, and holy marching orders. I want them to shape our lives by guiding the paths that we choose to travel. I want them to inform our choices and direct how we live among other people. I want them to challenge us to stretch ourselves beyond our comfort zones and at least a little day go into a new place with new people. If we can do all of these things guided by those words, I cannot help but believe that our lives will be grounded in love that grows and moves us towards 
becoming the beloved community. I've been thinking about how important it is to live our lives according to these two commandments, especially right now in this community, and especially during this season when we need to stay apart. We have been shoved out of our beautiful building and we've been forced into new ways of coming together while still staying apart. It has been hard and it has also changed us in so many ways. Maybe for the first time this morning, there are people here with us that have never been able to do what they've needed to do inside to even consider walking through the doors of a building that looks like ours just to check us out, to let down the many barriers that have been built up in the hearts and minds of wonderful people who have responded in defensive ways, understanding that the church has done so much damage to so many of us over the years as a result of being tricked or duped or disappointed by broken promises or deceptive invitations. We get it. Many of us have walked that road and found our way here to a place, a place where we can be together, heal together, and find a way to live into these marching orders of love. But now over the past seven months, we have discovered new ways of being together, new ways of opening ourselves and our community up wider than we ever have before. So if you are here this morning for the first time, hear the words that we say every week, you are welcome and wanted here. And as we have done this over the past seven months, new people, new friends have started hearing and seeing and maybe even feeling differently about this way of being in the world, about this path that we make as we walk together. We bring the totality of our lived experience to each gathering, believing that we can and will be transformed in body, mind, and spirit together. I want our reading and our praying and our singing and our preaching every week to push us further than we would be able to do on our own and make a difference in our everyday lives, day after day. I want us to keep learning together about the beauty of our scripture and our tradition while also developing what we call a hermeneutic of suspicion, questioning and challenging anything and everything that doesn't feel like it aligns with these two great commandments. We often describe our particular approach as Episcopalians as a three-legged stool, scripture, reason, and tradition. We are inheritors of a rich legacy of ancestors who have shaped who they were in the world and in their faith's lives, intermingling those three different aspects and I believe that we do well when we do the same. When we too are able to pivot and respond from a place of generosity and love, that's how we are going to be able to heed the call to walk the path together in the days to come, especially during these next two weeks. I want to end this morning with some words of hope. They popped up in my Facebook feed as a reposting from 2016 by author Anne Lamott. They are a refreshing and contemporary reminder of how we might align our best intentions of living what I would describe as our marching orders for choosing love. 
Over the years, I have found Lamont's writing to be a helpful voice. She loves Jesus. She wrestles with the messiness of life. She doubts and she shouts. She writes beautifully. She challenges me on a regular basis to question many of my assumptions. All very good, holy, messy, real stuff. Listen to her words this morning as we head into these crazy weeks ahead. Notice her ability to show up and be seen, to speak her truth, and in the end, her willingness to live in the paradoxical nature of our faith. She writes, Maybe God is in whom we move, live, and have our being, but the world is also a chaotic place, and humanity is also a chaotic place, and I am a chaotic place some days too. So I take the right action. I get my own emotional acre in order through radical self-care, serving the poor, sharing my M&Ms, flirting with the very old. Then the insight follows. The one I share with my Sunday school kids every single week, that all evidence to the contrary, we are loved and chosen and safe. We stick together, we share, we listen. Wendell Berry tweeted today, love someone who doesn't deserve it. <laughs> I'm going to begin with my dog Bodie, who accidentally ate a pound of butter and all the bagels. Then I will work my way up to some particular elected officials, and then maybe even myself. It's good to be afraid when it mobilizes us to fight tooth and nail for what is right, when it pricks the balloon of our complacency, when it gets us back on our feet. A lot of us are both afraid and devoutly faithful at the exact same time, fairly often, for ourselves, for our kids, our elderly, our country. But what is true and the exact right thing I need to hear today is that courage is fear that has said its prayers. And that, my friends, is what I need to hear this morning, and maybe you do too. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Maybe today is a reminder of how we live and for whom we show up in every way, large and small. I give thanks for this community and its willingness to be both afraid and devoutly faithful at the exact same time fairly often. It is indeed good to be afraid when it mobilizes us to fight tooth and nail for what is right, when it pricks the balloon of our complacency, when it gets us back on our feet. It is in fact what Carmelite nun and mystic of the 16th century Teresa of Avila implored us all to remember. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth, but ours. So my friends, with every step, with every vote, with every caring act that puts someone else 
in the center of our lives, know that we are indeed growing in faith-filled generosity. May it be so.